This is the visible hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Kyron Chow, who is the Roger F. Murray Associate Professor of Business at Columbia Business School. Today we're going to talk about his paper, Closing the Revolving Door, which is joined with Joseph Palmenovich and Siddharth Vich. Kyrong, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me here. Kyrong, what is the revolving door? So revolving door is the idea that uh, government employees, for example, the regulators, later transit to private sector, work for the industry they used to regulate. Presumably, this is a, a topic of interest because we think that this movement may in some way distort uh, the decisions or the incentives or the behavior um, of these uh, government officials while they are working for the regulators or, or just generally in government. That is it, the anticipation of moving to the industry that maybe makes them behave slightly different. Uh, prior to your paper, what do we mm -hmm. know about uh, what were the causes and especially consequences of this revolving door process? The kind of the revolving door has uh, always been, you know, attracting a lot of attention from the media because the potential distortion on the behavior which you just mentioned on the regular side and on the government employee side while they work for the government. So people really worry about that this is going to, you know, really change the way they regulate the industry. So uh, this has attracted a lot of media attention as well as academic interest. So prior our, to our work, there are extensive literature kind of looking into this issue. So, um, so I think my, my, my sense is that the prior literature, there are like two uh, set of uh, research. One set is comparing firms that hire prior regulators, for example, in their board of directors and compares to firms that don't have uh, ex-regulators, kind of look at what's the difference and kind of the kind of the fact that they hire these prior regulators on the firm's performance, kind of the risk of being facing a litigation from the government or enforcement actions. So one of the kind of the key uh, challenge facing this uh, substrate of literature is that firms that actively hiring active, you know, ex-regulators tend to be quite different from firms that are not hiring, right? So there's a big selection issue out there. Uh, in a sense that some firms may anticipate uh, government actions and then they start to hire lobbyists, they start to hire ex regulators. So kind of an example is recently the TikTok, right? So recently they see a lot of uh, the political hits uh, from both sides of the aisle in the United States, probably also in, in Europe as well. Uh, so they start to aggressively hire some ex-government you know, officials, try to kind of defend uh, these potential regulatory actions down the road. So, so that's kind of one substrate of literature. The second strand of literature is look at employees who act kind of who eventually get hired by uh, the uh, by by some uh, private firms, uh, and then they kind of go back in time and compare whether they behave differently while they are in government. And again, kind of a major challenge for this substrate of literature is that. So they only can observe revolving door after it occurred, right? So again, there's some subtle selection issues there because, you know, firstly, people get hired by the industry may be quite different from those who work for the government forever, right? So there's obvious 
selection on the ability, right? So some re- really big, good uh, performers may more likely be poached by the uh, industry. Some star attorneys, so for example, in, in SEC may be more likely to get offers outside. So there's selection on ability. And also, even if there's no selection, you know, even if when researchers find good instrument or good control for the ability, uh, the challenge is that even if you find they behave differently, you don't know whether that's their characteristics of the per- the individual himself or herself, or uh, it's because of incentive effect, right? So uh, to, to kind of give you an example, if we see some regulator being very aggressive uh, while they are in the government and they later get uh, hired by the uh, private sector, and we don't know whether that's because they see the prospect of being hired uh, by the industry, so they behave in that way. Or by nature, they are just very kind of aggressive regulator. And later on, the industry really see that they accumulate a lot of experience, so they hire them. So that's kind of the kind of two challenges uh, we see in the prior literature. So the last challenge uh, is that, so the prior literature often focus on one particular uh, agency. We don't know much about how widespread uh, the revolving door phenomenon is for the entire uh, federal government in the U.S. So that's kind of the three limitations we are trying to advance in our research. So let me then take a, a small step back and uh, maybe rephrase some of the themes of what you have said. And there is a slightly different interpretation. You let me know whether you agree mm-hmm. uh, with me or not. So mm-hmm. I will say that maybe like the, the, broad, the broad theme of this type of research is trying to figure out whether there is something nefarious about uh, this process. Correct? So, mm-hmm. you know... Yeah. Is there something that is happening that shouldn't be happening from mm-hmm. a societal perspective, correct? Mm-hmm. And then you said, okay, well, a lot of firms are hiring uh, these ex-government officials. Of course, they are different. And you said that TikTok was about to, is about to be regulated. So it started hiring a lot of uh, ex-regulators. In order, what you said was to defend itself, a more benign interpretation could be that if I am going to be heavily regulated, I need to hire people who understand the process. You know, mm. even with the best intentions as a mm-hmm. company, I may not know what I'm supposed to do and I need somebody who understands it to guide me. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that will be like what the defenders, you know, of, the, mm-hmm. of this practice uh, will argue, correct? Mm-hmm. And secondly, uh, you are saying, well, if we look also at the, at the individuals, it turns out that some individuals are has been more aggressive or less aggressive and these are the ones that are hard or less hired or not not fired but it could be that they were always like that right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you know I, I presume that as somebody who ends up working for the uh, pro-life or pro-choice lobbies you know mm-hmm. have sincere beliefs already in that direction yes. right so mm-hmm. you know it's not they are not uh, maybe compromising morally so much regardless of, of of what they are. So, mm-hmm. so, so I, I guess that in, what I'm trying to say is that the holy grail here is trying to say, well, we can somehow uh, define what the optimal decisions will be of these people while they're in government and mm-hmm. anything that they do to take decisions that differ from those mm-hmm. as a result of the anticipation that we're going to interpret as a distortion. Is that a right way to, to, 
uh, to interpret what you said? Certainly, yeah. So I think, as you said, I think the kind of the key we want to kind of get at in this research is whether that's the opportunity for work for outside somehow has changed the behavior of, of the government officials while they are in the government. And again, so we cannot say whether that change is optimal or not. I think that's a much bigger question, right? So, but, you know, the fact that whether they already anticipate that opportunities down the road, we have a revolving door there. And because I see that revolving door, I'm going to behave differently, you know, for the good or for bad, I don't know. Uh, so we don't want to kind of make a welfare statement there. But the fact that they change their behavior is something we really want to identify in this study, which we think uh, the prior literature hasn't really uh, addressed uh, concretely for that front. That's right. So I agree with you on, on this, and I stand to be corrected in that, in that I was interpreting any deviation for what you would have done as a distortion, and, and you are correcting me in saying, well, it could be that they work harder, right? So mm -hmm. maybe in a moral hazard in the government sector or something, them working harder, that's actually good. So from a welfare perspective, mm -hmm. we cannot say. The last thing that you mentioned is, well, the literature has focused on a single agency. We want to expand it. That's an issue that is obviously valuable, but orthogonal. Orthogonal to our earlier discussion, and it's something in which you also make some progress here. Yeah. Okay, so can you now tell us then what is it that you do in this paper? Maybe let's start chronologically you could describe first your study in terms of the bunching on wages. Uh, and then mm -hmm. we can move on to the rest. But if there is an initial mm -hmm. part in which you look at the bunching of wages, what is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, as we discussed, I think one of the challenge of the predator is the fact that they uh, can only observe regulators when they go through the revolving door ex post. So what we want to do is kind of to really kind of think about uh, a setting where we can observe the acts, their activity X and T. So what kind of maybe just like one sentence about the data we use. So we file uh, filed repeated FOIA a request for to the uh, U.S. government. So yes, yes to yes to interrupt you here. FOIA is Freedom of Information Act. Yes, uh, the Freedom not, of Information Act. Not everybody Act. is aware of the jargon. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, so we filed repeated Freedom of Information Act request to obtain. Uh, a huge data set that covers the entire civilian workforce of the you know, federal employees in the US from 2024 to 2021. That covers 2 million uh, uh, workers while they are in, in the federal government. And so the, and the setting we're exploring, which we're gonna relate to the bunching estimation technique we're gonna talk about later, uh, is the fact that you know, when uh, a federal employee, when their salary across a certain threshold, then if they want to access the government and work for the private sector, there is a cooling off period. And during this period, they are not allowed to uh, represent their new employ employers. Say, you know, if I was uh, a SEC attorney and if I access attorney and work for Goldman Sachs, and I'm not allowed to represent Goldman Sachs to talk about any matter uh, in front of SEC, right? And uh, also, so that's one restriction. Uh, and the second restriction is that they are not supposed to lobby for any foreign entities. So there's this uh, ban is for one year. This is, just to be clear, this is a regulation. This is the law. Yes, this is a legislation that applies to the entire uh, federal employee. And so if you violate this regulation, this, this uh, legislation, 
uh, then uh, you will face uh, the potential of the criminal charge and up to five years in jail time. So it's a very serious stuff. And I also talked to two long-serving uh, you know, ethnic attorneys in the government, and they say that for every federal employee, the day they join the government, they will have a workshop telling them, you know, this law exists. So now let that, that put us in the shoe of a federal employee, right? So if, you know, my goal is now I'm going to work for SEC for several years, build up my resume and make some connections, and then I will plan to exit SEC and work for Goldman Sachs because I think that's kind of a better trajectory. So uh, I never have, you know, you know, uh, serving the public is just kind of the byproduct. I really want to make more money, right? So that's, suppose that's me. And now I will be very conscientious not crossing the threshold because doing that is going to really limit my outside options. Uh, and so now when my salary progress, more my salary grows as my experience in SEC grows, like before crossing the threshold, uh, if I haven't received my outside offers uh, from my dream job, for example, from Goldman Sachs, I will say, please don't raise my salary or I will not, you know, I take myself out of the consideration of a promotion next year just to, uh, you know, make, make cluster below the threshold so that I don't trigger that restriction, all right? So then, you know, if many people are doing that, uh, so if you look at statistically the distribution of the salary, you are likely to see the so-called bunching uh, behold, below the threshold. So that's, our hypothesis, right? So our hypothesis is that for certain agencies and certain type of uh, government employees, if they really care about outside options, uh, they should uh, essentially try to forego some of their salary increase or some promotions to avoid crossing the threshold to preserve the outside option. So that's exactly what we find. We find that among uh, 165 uh, federal agencies, uh, 32 of them, we document significant bunching below uh, the post-employment restriction threshold. You know, the threshold that I just mentioned would trigger a cooling off period. Um, so, and among that 32 agencies, we find around half of the employees are actively bunching, right? So uh, we call them the strategic actors. Uh, and for the strategic actors, they are willing to give up around 8% of their annual salaries to bunching below, right? So the idea is that uh, you cannot bunch too long, right? So if uh, your horizon is that I will wait for the job for one year or two years, uh, then I'm willing to give up some of my salary around 8%. Um, but now, suppose I were being stuck in that position for five years, I still haven't uh, seen kind of outside uh, uh, opportunities coming in, maybe I'm just willing to kind of jump up. So uh, we find that on average, they're willing to give up around 8% of their salary. Although there's some heterogeneity, which we're going to talk about later. You gave, you know, a, a very comprehensive uh, summary, but I'm going to mm -hmm. ask you if you don't mind to go again through some of these things that you mentioned. So you said out of a Freedom of Information uh, Act request, that gave you a, a data set, a panel data set of all, all the employees are working in the federal government for a number of years, uh, mm -hmm. 15 years or something. Uh, so I presume that for every one of these, you know their salary, of course. Yeah. Um, and they, you have their position or something. Mm -hmm. uh, now you have a data set, a panel data set of individuals and years. Now you have described how the 
legislation works, right? So, so imagine that the threshold is at the uh, $83,000 per year. Mm -hmm. uh, I earn exactly that. I don't have the cooling of periods. If I earn a dollar more, I'm subject to those with the criminal penalties, etc. Mm -hmm. And you, your hypothesis is, well, if uh, there are out of people who are motivated by the prospect of uh, joining other companies in the private sector, Mm -hmm. They might not want to move, you know, they, they will happily renounce to a, to a dollar. Mm. They will happily renounce to $2 and so on and yeah. so forth. So That's at this right. point, uh, this is a technicality, but it's something that I, I mean, one of the many things that I learned by reading this paper uh, is what actually, how actually these uh, bunching regressions work. Uh, could, you, could you describe how do you conclude that there is an, an excess mass of uh, employees who are, in the example that I gave, at exactly 83,000, and there is barely anybody at 83,001 and so on. Like, how do you convert that very simple insight into like a statistical test that they, mm -hmm. that allows you to, uh, to interrogate the data more thoroughly? Yeah. Thanks. So. So kind of on the technical side, so, you know, just follow up what you just uh, mentioned about the intuition, which is, you know, for someone who just have $1 above the threshold, so it's very easy for just them to give up. You don't give up much, essentially, to avoid triggering that restriction. Um, but suppose now you are, your potential, you know, wage is $10,000 more, $20,000 more. At a certain point, you are saying, you know, you know, screw it, I will just, uh, um, you know, forget about working for the outside because I'm giving up too much. So, you know, there are someone you know, who prefer bunching because their salary is just above it. And there are someone who's, you know, much higher, have a salary potential much higher, they will prefer not bunching. So there's going to be an indifferent uh, individual, we call the marginal buncher who's indifferent, right? And that indifferent um, uh, marginal buncher going to tell us how severe that restriction is, because if this uh, or how much they care about the fact that they, they want to preserve the outside option. So if that marginal buncher is very, that their reach potential is very large, uh, then that must mean that they care this outside option a lot. So now the question is, uh, statistically, how do we identify the marginal buncher? So intuitively, uh, that can be identified by how much bunching mass there is at the threshold, right? So essentially, if intuitively, if we plot the distribution of the wage, we see a huge spike at the threshold uh, and a big valley above the threshold, meaning that the people who are supposed to be above the threshold moving uh, below the threshold, then intuitively that implies that the marginal buncher is much higher. So now, how do we kind of call something called access mass? So this kind of get to the detail of the bunching estimation. So essentially how we do it is that uh, that which distribution should be a smooth distribution in absence of any regulatory or kind of legislatory distortion or any strategic manipulation, right? Because people join at a random time, they quit at a random time, salary progress at some kind of constant growth rate. So if you just simulate a Poisson process with enough observations, you will see a smooth distribution. But if some people are manipulating on the threshold, then that smooth distribution gonna feature, feature some spike at the threshold. So what we do is we exclude regions around the threshold because we think that distribution is not natural, it's uh, affected by the strategic behavior. 
And then we fit a smooth polynomial distribution to the remaining parts, right? And then compare the observed or the actual distribution with this counterfactual smooth distribution. So the part that the access mass above the smooth distribution is going to be at the bunching mass. And above the threshold, they're going to be some missing mass, right? And uh, the, the longer, uh, you know, then you move where uh, you think the marginal bunch are going to be. And the marginal bunch are going to be where the missing mass is going to equal to the bunching mass. So that's essentially how we identify that important uh, sufficient statistic in a distribution, which is uh, where is the marginal bunch. So obviously, if again, in the example that they gave, let's imagine the threshold was $83,000. Okay, just to say something. If I want to remain below the threshold, maybe I cannot go to my boss and say, I want to earn exactly 83,000 because it's a federal government, you know, it is out of, there are a lot of rigidities and also, you know, it could be that my boss says, well, actually, we don't give you that additional promotion. You have to earn 81,000 or whatever, right? So, yeah, you know, so that, 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 that's fine. So you have like a certain like small interval right below the threshold. Yeah. So now there's going to be a valley to the right of the threshold. Mm-hmm. And, and if we have like a certain excess mass that is like, you know, out of people that shouldn't be there, okay, mm-hmm. right below the threshold, you are saying that we have to equalize it with the missing mass to the right of the threshold. That's right. So now there are two, two possibilities. One of them is that there is like an enormous valley, right? Right, mm-hmm. right after the threshold. So that is, there is nobody in the whole federal government earning 84,000, mm-hmm. let's just say, or maybe there is like a small valley, but then if you need to equalize the missing mass, you need to move further right and right, like, you know, yeah. further right and right and right. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, if the valley is not very big, well, it could be that we end up on the 110,000 area, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Because we need as many people on the right as we have on the left. And mm-hmm. then, your conclusion will be the, that the marginal buncher is willing to give that will be like dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the marginal buncher is only a small proportion of people because actually yeah. while we're discussing all this in terms of homogeneous effects, mm-hmm. there is heterogeneity in how people, you know, care about these things and so on. Right. So mm-hmm. so maybe yes, there is somebody who's willing to give up. $27,000, but there is very few people who are willing to give up mm-hmm. $1,000. And that's the reason that we, right? So, mm-hmm. so there is a little bit of a, of a notion in which the marginal buncher doesn't tell you the whole story, really. It's, right? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. more like the, it's more the excess mass versus missing mass. That seems to me like a more relevant statistic. So I agree. So I think, um, uh, let me answer it in, in, in two ways. So I think you mentioned that there is this possibility that some of the valley could be very shallow in the sense that, you know, kind of in, t- in terms of the techno- kind of technical term, it is called the dominated region, right? So for example, for the region right above the threshold, you could see uh, still people out, the- out there and you said this is because someone just don't care about the outside option or they just cannot really manipulate their wage. So I think that's a, a very uh, common uh, kind of, situation that people encounter in the literature of the bunching estimation to see, theoretically, we should observe zero mass just above the threshold, right? Because if you can 
perfectly manipulate your wage, they, then it makes no sense to have one dollar plus, uh, you know, the threshold plus one dollar uh, because you're going to lose a lot and you can only give up one dollar to avoid triggering that restriction. So let me let me interrupt you here, if, if you don't mind, because mm -hmm. uh, this is something that you mentioned in the paper, but this logic only makes sense in the presence of equal opportunities of revolving door for everybody, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. so, yeah. so it is, you know, like you're looking at federal government employees, and we don't really know whether these opportunities are there for everybody, right? So yes. yeah. it is possible mm -hmm. that there you have somebody working on IT security mm -hmm. who is who will normally be paid one dollar above the threshold. Mm -hmm. And that person doesn't have any opportunity to move to Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. The opportunity is to move somewhere else. And therefore, for that person, even a single dollar is not worth it, right? Yes. Yeah. So that 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 is important to say here that because you refer to these agents as at some point as the strategic agents. Mm -hmm which they are if we thought that that the, dif the differentiating factor among them is on how much they realize that opportunity mm -hmm. maybe the differentiating factor is whether the opportunity exists at all correct that's right so yeah certainly right so here as you mentioned there's a there's huge heterogeneity there what we find is that only 50 percent of the employee on average among the bunching agencies only the revolving agencies uh, they choose to bunch and the other 50% they don't bunch. And it could be that their uh, wage premium in the outside may be just not as high or they just, you know, for some subjective reason, they just prefer the stability in the government. So that we don't know. And we have essentially uh, additional uh, estimates, which you alert, have alerted to the idea of the fraction of the strategic agents. And again, maybe strategic is not a good term. Uh, it just described that this proportion, half of the agents choose to bunch in that revolving agency and the other half don't bunch. If you could go back now, something that you mentioned already, but uh, I want to put it again on the table, which is that you do this type of bunching estimation regressions separately for each agency. Mm -hmm. And uh, you find that there's heterogeneity on whether there seems to be any bunching at all or not, depending on the agency. What is it that you find? when you look at this separately across different agencies? Yeah, so um, what we find is that, you know, there's a huge heterogeneity across the federal agencies. So that's the reason we do it agency by agency, because we find that if we're pulling it together, then it essentially mask a lot of the heterogeneity there. So uh, kind of just to give you some numbers, out of the 165 agencies that we have enough observations to run the bunching estimation, uh, we find that, uh, 32 of them are revolving agencies, meaning that we find statistically significant uh, bunching around the threshold. So uh, we choose 10% p-value at the threshold. So that's how we define it. All right, so now the question is, who are those revolving agencies? Who are the indifferent agencies? And we find that the revolving agencies are mainly kind of the way to characterize it are mainly regulators, financial regulators in particular. And uh, for example, the SEC, uh, you know, the Security, you know, uh, Exchange Commission, uh, and the FDIC, Federal Deposit uh, Insurance Corporation, which are a banking regulator, and CFTC. Uh, so these financial regulators are mainly uh, the the bunchers, and also uh, the other kind of group of uh, revolving agencies are uh, agencies that are in charge of many managing and distributing funds. 
such as farm credit agencies. What are the other kind of in different agencies, they are mainly kind of the public safety and uh, agencies and you know public service agencies, such as uh, social security agencies, which are essentially in charge of social, social, social security, right? So I think we find that it's actually quite intuitive because if you kind of compare uh, the outside options for this group, two group of agencies, the attorneys at SEC has much better outside options than you know, people who work for uh, social security agencies. So I think you know that that's kind of the uh, main heterogeneity we uncover across uh, doing these agency by agency estimates, and also you know we uh, link this to some of uh, the measures, the kind of characteristics of the agency. We find that the revolving agencies tend to be uh, more independent from uh, political oversight. They have uh, broader power, and uh, they are also. Um, essentially kind of uh, more like an independent agency. So, so that's kind of the characteristics we find uh, for the revolving and independent agencies. Let me go back and make a few comments on, on some of the things that, that you said. So my first reaction is, well, you have like 160 agencies, I think that you mentioned. And, and out of those, I think you said 13 uh, mm, are the ones for you with 30. Okay. Uh, are the ones for which you find a statistically significant uh, effect. Mm -hmm. That's obviously a minority, right? So, mm -hmm. so one thing that I, I guess that was a relatively, I didn't have a strong prior going to mm -hmm. this, but if anything, I might have expected that this uh, phenomenon is more widespread, which I think that underlies the benefit of having the whole of the federal government, right? Yes. If anything, yeah. maybe what I've learned from here is that this is not a phenomenon that is as widespread as I would mm -hmm. have thought, okay? <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. You know, so so I think that this is important. I mean, you could tell me that, okay, wait wait a second, this, these agencies are very important, okay? And yeah. then mm -hmm. that's, you know, qualitatively that's important or not, but, but sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so just uh, kind of to jumping on that point, so uh, a great qualitatively, this agency, although in terms of the count of the agency, they they are uh, not the majority. Um, but for, for one thing you mentioned, they are important. They are in charge of important industries. They also tend to have more employees than the others. So, so again, you know, before we don't have a prior of how widespread it is in the uh, federal agencies. But if you look at the, the these in different agencies, you wouldn't actually see think that they will have you know, people care about outside options, right? So think about someone work for the social security agencies and, you know, they probably have the best job given their credential, right? So, and it is not obvious what is the outside job for them um, because they are essentially just in charge of uh, public service. They are civil servant uh, and there is no industry that directly regulated by them. So, yeah, I would say that's uh, we rule out a lot of the agencies that are indifferent. And, you know, I suppose you may say, yeah, of, of course, it is, uh, we should not see any revolving door among this agency. So the other thing that, that uh, I want to discuss in terms of the heterogeneity is that you, you mentioned something along the lines of 50% uh, are bunching, 50% are not bunching. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously, these are local estimates, right? Yeah. Something that we have not mentioned to this point is I said, let's imagine that the threshold is $83,000, but the threshold, we haven't actually said what it is. And it is 86.5% mm -hmm. uh, 
50% of level two of the executive schedule. Yeah. Uh, which sounds like a relatively high salary mm-hmm. to be, be working for the federal government. This implies that this 50% is applying to, to the employees in this vicinity, right? You That's don't know right. anything about the uh, potential revolving on incentives of the janitors uh, yes. in, the, yeah. in the federal government. Okay, because totally right. they are very far away from, from the threshold. Now, I would guess that for the janitors, the incentives are zero, right? The <laughs> revolving door yeah. opportunities are zero, no? Now, again, mm-hmm. you could tell me, okay, but these are the people that we care about. We don't care so much about the janitors. That, that's fine, okay? But that, that extrapolation in terms of raw numbers is, you know, is not immediate. Yeah. Uh, the, the last thing that I wanted to say is, is taking us back a little bit to the discussion that we had earlier about, uh, I use the word, the holy grail of this literature is, well, are they making a different decision uh, while they're in government? Mm-hmm. And, and the, something that you write at some point, I think it's in the abstract or somewhere around there, is that you identify the existence of revolving door incentives. Now, and, and this is true. It's not, it's not incorrect that these are revolving door incentives, but, but the incentives are of a particular type, which is trying to depress your wages a little bit for a while, right? We don't know, because obviously that, that, will, be, that will require an amount of, uh, you know, a detail of a data set that however great your data set is, is, you know, beyond the reach right now, potentially of, of empirical researchers. We don't know what decisions these people are taking that refer to the potential future employers. Yeah, so uh, there, you know, I agree with you. I think one step is to, uh, to, to show that these people do kind of conscientiously do something different, right? At least for their wage uh, in anticipation of the future opportunities. But the kind of next step is to think about whether they regulate differently uh, in anticipation of this revolving door opportunities. There, we can say something about this. We call it kind of the impact of the revolving door incentive in the paper. So uh, we did two things. So one thing uh, is more general, uh, less well identified, but just give you some intuition. The other step uh, we will say is more, we, we are more confident about the identification. So let me just talk about the first step. So the first step is we just uh, try to kind of obtain some kind of correlation of, you know, whether the revolving agencies and the non the non-revolving agencies or the indifferent agencies are different in their regulatory burdens uh, and their rulemaking activities. And we indeed find that the revolving agency seems to uh, you know, compare relative to the, the uh, non-revolving agencies, they seem to have a you know, lower regulatory burden on the uh, industries that they regulate. And again, this is purely correlation. We don't know whether there are some unobserved characteristics driving this. So to sharpen the identification, we look into one particular agency that we have a natural experiment. So that's uh, SEC, the Security Exchange Commissions. So uh, what happened is that before this legislation of post-employment restriction applies to all the federal agencies except SEC because they filed uh, a request for exemption uh, so that before a, a date they are uh, exempt from this restriction. So there's uh, no one in, in the SEC is subject to this restriction. Uh, and then that exemption expired and they didn't really try to get an extension on the ex- uh, exemption. So therefore, so after uh, after this uh, ex- exemption expired, 
uh, everyone above the threshold, again, subject to the restriction, right? So essentially you can think about for uh, attorney in the SEC who have a salary above the threshold, and then you, you know after the exemption on SEC employee expired, my outside option suddenly dropped. So now this gives us uh, exogenous variation, at least for the uh, employee level, that my suddenly my likelihood of working for the outside industry for the you know, industry I regulate suddenly goes down. So whether that's going to change my behavior, so that's what we look into. So what do we find that for uh, those employees whose uh, outside option has changed discreetly after the exemption has expired, uh, they tend to regulate more. So, and kind of the intuitive kind of thing is that before I expect that I'm very likely to exit for the industry in the next five years, and now that prospect becomes very remote. Now I'm gonna do, you know, essentially my normal thing. I'm gonna be, you know, less willing to curry favors from, uh, you know, say uh, the industry I'm regulating. That kind of going back to uh, the, the hypothesis we started, we really kind of want to understand whether that revolving door incentive has changed their behavior. And our results suggest that uh, indeed, kind of the prospect of working for the outside industry, uh, the prospect of working for their industry, they regulate, uh, tend to make them uh, less aggressive uh, in pursuing some of the enforcement and some criminal charge uh, while they are in the government. So that's. Uh, uh, the evidence we have. So let me let me rephrase uh, this a little bit. So, so you are saying we have like a cross section uh, comparison between the different uh, the different agencies, and it turns out, and we have some measure of regulatory burden. Now you you haven't quite described what that is. It's going to be difficult to compare uh, across across agencies because when you go by counting words. Of this type or the other type, you know, words can mean many different things in many settings. Like, I can even imagine a situation in which more words is actually <laughs> helpful, right? Yes. Like, like you a, give it more exemptions, more, yeah. More exemptions. Even even there could be situations in which maybe maybe the uh, it could be more exemptions, or even if I am a monopolist uh, in a certain or an oligopolist in a certain industry. Well, one way of keeping my barriers to entry is to be heavily regulated because I know that potential upstarts are not going to have the same economies of scale in reading all these le legislation and regulations and the compliance departments that, that I have, right? So, uh, you know, so, so, so they're actually obvious that more regulation is, is, is something that the industry doesn't want. That's right. Yeah. That is not something that's that's not something that is exclusive to your paper. And I think that mm -hmm. that if you tell me, you know, the literature has has a typically interpreted this way, and while what you are describing, Jordi, is is potentially true in practice, that's not the case. I, I take it as granted, but we need to put a, a a caveat here. And this is why you said this is obviously not tight causal evidence, but something that you know is is. Is more like descriptive. Yeah. So maybe kind of jumping on, on that point. So, I mean, again, I totally agree with you that we don't know what the industry wants. Yeah, it could be that they want less regulation. That's what we typically see from the uh, banking sector. Uh, but it could be that they want more regulation in certain times, especially regulation for others, right? So the banks really want their fintechs to be regulated. 
So that we, uh, you know, we cannot make a general statement. So I think that's a good caveat. And the other thing uh, you are saying, uh, it's hard to have a kind of broad regulatory cost measure for everyone that is somewhat consistent across different agencies because there's a lot of heterogeneity. Uh, so that we can make a little progress. So we use the Paper Reduction Act, which requires, say, for each agency when they propose a new rule, they need to essentially estimate what's the hours to fill in that forms. So we think that hours of filling that forms is a, a good consistent estimates of the kind of the paperwork kind of a aspect of regulatory burden. So that I think is, you know, a, a small or minor contribution of the paper, which is kind of get a more comprehensive, cons consistent measure uh, across different agencies on the regulatory burden. So let me go now to the, to the second thing that you mentioned, okay, which is that the, so the ACC is, is an agency and the, it, for whatever reason, uh, between 2003 and 2014, it was not affected by this threshold that we have been discussing throughout. It, it started being affected by this only after 2014. The first thing that you find is that uh, there was no bunching before 2014, and then there is bunching afterwards, right? Which means that the, the incentives in terms of depressing your weight that, that you were finding earlier, you know, like, if anything, there's like a stronger causal evidence along, along, the, uh, along the lines of, of having wages on the left-hand side that we were de describing. That's the right. second yeah. thing uh, that you mentioned is, where, and suddenly in 2014, the SEC started regulating more. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, this is, Obviously, you cannot. What I wanted to mention here is that you cannot assign the regulations to specific people inside the agency, right? You don't know what individual wrote what clause mm -hmm. or what draft. So it's it's yep. more like a, a before after comparison, but at, at at the level of the whole agency, right? And sorry, so let, let me clarify. So we are not looking at the uh, rulemaking. I mean, even for rulemaking, you can see. So for each rule, they have a list of, you know, the, the drafters of the rule. But we are not looking into the rulemaking aspect of the regulation. We're looking at the enforcement action because the SEC have a bunch of attorneys. So uh, for enforcement action, we can actually attribute to each individual. And we can also observe more detailed actions like, you know, firstly, whether they are part of the enforcement action, whether they are the lead of the enforcement action, whether they pursue a criminal charge or just a civil litigation or whether uh, they try to reopen an old case, which was already settled. So we can have a very granular observation of at each individual level, each attorney level, uh, whether their behavior has changed. So essentially, we are essentially not an agency level where the SEC has become a more vigilant uh, you know, agency afterwards. It's more uh, for the uh, employees above the threshold with outside option uh, was discreetly diminished after the uh, change in the law and relative to their peers just below the threshold in some sense that both high rank officials, their characteristics should be very similar. So we do a kind of different diff in the sense that after the change, whether those people above the threshold are going to uh, behave differently. And that's indeed what we find. They uh, tend to uh, kind of regulate more. They pursue more enforcement actions. They become more aggressive in pursue criminal charges. So, and we interpret that this is because now 
suddenly their behavior, their outside options becomes uh, lower, their likelihood of working for, say, Goldman Sachs becomes less likely. So they are more willing to be aggressive uh, because they are less worried that, you know, next uh, quarter I'm going to go to work for Goldman Sachs. I better not, you know, uh, make my future employer employer mad. Uh, so, so that yeah, that's what we did in the second part of the test. So I think that, okay, so this is something that I was not in, I think it was not in the version that I read. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes, we just added uh, in uh, last month. So let me give you my like a real-time uh, reaction to this. I think that the way that you started, this is a, this was already a great paper. I'm sure this is going to be very well published and everything. The way that you started uh, the paper is slightly masking this uh, this result here. Uh, this this result is is the one that more directly and narrowly um, tackles what we discussed at the beginning and what I think is the key question in this literature, uh, mm. which is the distortion in behavior. Mm. Uh, because you know, there is a there is a benefit in looking at a lot of agencies, and and then there's a, a benefit in seeing what agency is this or what agency is that. And the, the, you know, the distortion, the weights, all that is interesting. But but even if this applies only to the SEC, still the SEC is important. And, and here you do have uh, the way that you're describing it to me. You know, uh, arguably causal. I'm, I don't know the details. I'm sure it's not perfect because nothing is perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, but, but you know, like a, a shot at arguably causal change in behavior by employees that is caused by a change in a revolving door adjacent uh, legislation, right? So this is something that we have not mentioned, but that you mentioned in the paper is the two main hypotheses from a theory perspective, which are uh, capture and schooling. So you, you, you mentioned in the papers, regulators might want to go easier on the regulated companies in order to carry favor with them. That will be capture. Schooling will be that, them, that the regulators want to be tougher in order to show that they are smart. You have here, you know, a, a, an attempt to distinguish, an, an attempt that is a, a very reasonable attempt to distinguish empirically between these two theories, right? Like your your will be clearly this is not schooling, right? Because mm. when the revolving door incentives are uh, are weaker, mm -hmm. we see them be more aggressive, and when they That's are right. stronger, we see them being less aggressive. Totally right. Yes. So, uh, so I agree with you. I think you know uh, we uh, start the paper mainly focused on the bunching aspect, and you know, uh, and the paper has improved a lot while we are presenting it. So, as you mentioned, that you know. In the version that I sent you a long time ago, that doesn't have this version, and we presented in the NBR uh, in July. And I think the key feedback we get there is that we want to push a little bit more on, uh, kind of, uh, kind of look at the, the impact of the revolving incentive. We know it's there, but you know, how does that change? What direction are you change? It's towards more regulation or less regulation. So that's uh, the new things we add into. Uh, so. You know, I will share you with you the update, the version, maybe that we uh, highlight this aspect a little more uh, than previous version. But I agree with you. I think, you know, even if this is a limit to a one particular agency, we think, you know, it's important kind of from the kind of the welfare uh, perspective, right? So it's not about like just uh, 
employees of the government manipulating their wage, uh, but also in the way that they change their behavior while they are interacting with the industry and the uh, and the companies that are regulating. As I, as I said, I haven't read this. It is possible that some things go, go wrong. One thing that, that is coming to mind is that uh, if, if I was a lawyer, that before 2014 is allowing uh, their salary to go above a certain mm. threshold, that means that I am not that concerned by the fact that the carve out may, you know, may disappear, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it, you know, there is a little bit not, you know, as I said, nothing is perfect. Mm-hmm. This is not perfect either. It is possible mm-hmm. that the selection of the people who ended up on the other side mm-hmm. are also people who were not going to care ending on the other side and so on and so forth, right? But but yeah. but it is, I mean, it's better than anything else that I have seen. Mm-hmm. Um, Thanks. Mm-hmm. What else do you have? You mm-hmm. know, I think that you, you have a, a section at the end called consequences of revolving your sensitivity, but now I don't know whether you have it. Yeah, so uh, I think there are two more results I want to mention. One is kind of look at a little bit more uh, employee level heterogeneity. Uh, so uh, I think this is a section also like we add a lot after, you know, in the recent draft. So essentially, we kind of try to kind of get a better understanding, uh, you know, among the 50% people who bunch and the 50% people who don't bunch, what are the main differences? So kind of the uh, way to summarize, you know, what the characteristics of a typical buncher is, they are uh, high performers, they are male, they are more likely to become lobbyists afterwards. So kind of depict a picture where, you know, some, you know, ambitious high performer, they enter the government uh, and they get promoted very fast. And then once they approach the threshold, then they tend to pass a lot of the bonuses and promotion, and then they quit, become lobbyists. So that's kind of the uh, individual characteristics we find. Uh, on the contrary, uh, like female, maybe they value the stability and you know the welfare of working for the government even more. So they're less likely to bunch. So that's kind of a, they are also less likely to you know the the people who are less likely to expose become lobbyists are less likely to bunch. So that's uh, one result kind of adds the individual heterogeneity uh, and also. Uh, in the last section of the paper, which I think is also in the previous version, which is we kind of try to think about the policy counterfactuals, uh, kind of think about the uh, potential policy that try to close the so-called revolving door, uh, whether it's effective and what's the main trade-off. So, you know, this post-employment restriction is kind of a very uh, prominent policy. And so we essentially build a structural model where uh, employees, they accumulate their uh, knowledge, their human capital while working in the government. And then they are waiting for the outside offer to arrive and they quit the government quit from the government. And also they are facing uh, this threshold. And if they cross the threshold, uh, they their also option going to be limited. So, and in the model, essentially we create this bunching behavior. Uh, and we calibrate the model using the estimates we have. So the main kind of cost counterfactual we, uh, we we do is that, you know, maybe this one year ban is too short. Maybe let's just double it. We make it two year, we make it three year. Uh, or, or uh, you know, maybe that's this uh, idea of uh, forcing this cooling off period is just a bad idea. What if we just get rid of them entirely? So what are the trade-offs? So the trade-off we find is that, say we are trying to 
make this uh, cooling off period longer, make this post uh, employment restriction uh, stricter. So on the one hand, we will decrease the incentive distortion uh, related to the thing I just talked about, right? So uh, given the outside opportunities, they tend to uh, regular less, regulate less to cure favors from the uh, industry. Uh, but at the same time, if you make these restrictions too tight, their future salary expectation gonna go down because they are less likely to get outside offers and work for the uh, high paying jobs. So ex when they choose to join the government, they will be less willing to do so. So there's a trade-off between regulatory distortion and labor supply to the public sector. So now if we uh, double the length of the post-employment restrictions, we will find that the regulatory leniency is going to drop by 0.5% based on our structural model, and the labor supply is going to increase by 0.13%. So again, the trade-off is intuitive. But what is probably a little bit surprising is that the magnitude of this effect is very small, right? So we are doubling the restriction, but the effect is in terms of less than 1% for both sides. So what is the intuition there? So the intuition is that we find that this threshold-based policy is actually very ineffective in changing uh, people's behavior in the sense that because they can always bunch below the threshold. So the fact that you double the uh, restriction period, the biggest change is that there are going to be twice more people going to bunch. So that's the biggest impact. So the biggest impact is not how they regulate or the labor supply. So uh, essentially, that just shows that this type of policy, because people can games around, uh, about, around it, uh, is actually not as effective as many, uh, you know, uh, legislators and you know ethnic attorneys have been uh, thinking about because everyone is trying to work around it if they really want to work for outside. So that's kind of the uh, last part of the uh, paper, which is kind of thinking about uh, whether this policy is effective. So let me ask you a few questions about this. The way that you are describing it, uh, you have like a, a very simple structural model for which you calibrate, you know, the, the parameters of the model and then by doing the putative uh, hypothetical, you know, changes to the, some of these parameters, you see what happens to the rest of the variables. Mm -hmm. So th the first thing to say is that the way that you are describing it now, it will seem that part of this model is the distortion in behavior, not the distortion in the salaries, but, but you, you are estimating this on the SEC, right? Because you have, you have a bunch of agencies but only for one agency, you can estimate the distortion in behavior in the way that we just describe it, right? Because the distortion in how do they treat the regulated companies, we have just established is a much more meaningful question than whether they're distorting the salaries or not, right? So you're estimating this on the SEC. And now you're saying, okay, well, we have two policies there. The first one is we eliminate the restriction. The second is we double the cooling off period and uh, we find that the positive of bunching that implies that that is the margin that is affected the most. The labor supply not affected so much, while the distortion not affected so much. So that, that is true. I have two questions, as I said. The first one is the labor supply argument is the argument is an argument that is given very often. Like if we if we didn't allow them to go back to the private sector we will never get anybody smart, right? Because for whatever reason, 
it's not it's just not a reason that maybe the government sector doesn't have that much money but maybe in order to increase the size of these people we need congress to agree and congress in the us is never going to agree so we have a lot of additional distortions that make it impossible etc cetera, etc cetera. so the second best is where we just let them go okay but my i guess that one question would be well what is there in your data set that allows you to understand the labor supply the labor supply distortion if you only have people who have ended up working for the federal government. But that's my first question. Uh, the second is that it will seem to me that the reason that your counterfactuals are not biting so much is that you are keeping the threshold as it is. Uh, let's imagine that you kept the one-year cooling off period, but you move the threshold not to 86.5%, but instead to 40%, right? Like you halve the salary at which the threshold applies. Now, the cost of bunching will be enormous, right? So mm, it will mm. have to be a different margin that gives in. Certainly. So for your first question, so, uh, you know, um, the way we identify the labor supply effect is, firstly, uh, you are totally right. We are not estimating all the parameters. So for the labor, labor supply sensitivity to the wage, we use what is the... Uh, number that estimating the labor uh, literature. So we use a labor supply elasticity. And so essentially what we have is that the wage and the wage growth uh, for uh, people working in the government and also the wage premium when they access to the private sector, which we can back out from how much they bunch. So essentially we can know that, you know, uh, if you change the, uh, the cooling off period, what is the impact on your life uh, time expected uh, wage, right? So say if I double the uh, the cooling off period, my lifetime salary in the present value when I join the government going to decrease by say uh, 1%. And then through a labor supply elasticity, say that number is 0.4, that will be translated to 0.4% decrease in labor supply. So that's where, what, what we use. And again, I agree with you that uh, we don't have a labor supply uh, Elasticity specific for this group of people. We just use the uh, essentially uh, the number that is uh, estimated uh, for the labor literature is not as specific for this setting. So that's the structural assumption we're making there. But that, that, that assumption is actually quite important because mm -hmm. because uh, a, a lot of people would say that you are never hoping to earn a lot of money if you are joining the public sector, right? <laughs> that, these people Certainly. are not particularly, I mean, we're academics, I guess. So therefore, yeah. <laughs> you know, we should sympathize with that notion. Uh, That's true. That, that it, you know, maybe the elasticity of these people is even lower. That, that's true. That's certainly true. So uh, if that's the case, what we estimate is a lower bound of the impact of labor supply if people are less elastic to that. So your second question on changing the threshold, uh, so, you know, we actually did it, uh, in, you know, uh, ourselves, we didn't put in the paper. So we don't find that result being much different. I mean, of course, there are more people uh, when you change uh, that, you know, in the lower level of the, the threshold. Uh, but again, what the threshold is going to do is always near that region, right? Because when your salary is much higher, then you're going to ignore the thresholds. So, uh, and and also the, the point is that we didn't choose to do it in the full paper is also the point that you mentioned earlier. Uh, there is uh, the bunching estimation always identified from the local effect. And then we are a little bit cautious in, in the sense that how much we can extrapolate to other part of the distribution. 
And so what we understand is that we identify the incentive of revolving door on high paying executive level positions in the government. Uh, so these guys earn, you know, as of 2021, so the threshold was uh, uh, 171,000. So that's quite high for the government employees. So we don't know whether the same effect can apply for kind of a more lower level, kind of doing routine job people. And maybe the revolving door is not that important for them. You know, as you mentioned in the extreme example of a janitor, probably doesn't, doesn't matter that much. But again, you know, I think that the, the fact that they can evolve, they can uh, game around a threshold based policy, probably gonna make all types of the, this type of policy less effective. Uh, no matter how we can have, uh, structure it. Wonderful. Karen, uh, thank you for coming to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jody. That's a great conversation. Thank you. Please visit our website, uh, thevisiblehand.uk, for other past and future episodes of this podcast series, introductory music and logo by Tania Blanesisto, episode produced by Anderson Tan.